Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Well, we had a little bit of holiday unpleasantness, and it was all because of FIFA, Crystal. So while we were traveling, Classic. it turns out that our show, our last show uh, that we had on Tuesday, was fully blocked by FIFA. Um, and it, it was actually crazy because that show, as you guys might remember, included some video, not even audio, just some video of the Iranian soccer team refusing to play or refusing to sing its national anthem. It was less than 10 seconds. It was clearly within the guidelines of fair use. For people who don't know what that is, it basically means that news organizations are allowed to use copyrighted material as long as we're not just like, watch this. And as it's long the as full it has, context of the clip. As long as it has news value. Value, which this of course it did. In overtly yeah. political right. moment. Yes. We played, it's called voiceover. Right. So you can see it visually, but you don't actually hear it and we're talking over it. So right. it's not even the full audio and video. It was a tiny clip and they blocked our entire full premium show because of this 10 seconds of overtly, politically, clearly justifiable fair use content that honestly we didn't even think twice about putting in no. the show because it's such a clear instance of fair use doctrine. Right, of course, right. And look, we have contested it. We'll see. It takes weeks in order to win. We had to previously win a fight with the UFC uh, over that. So we have a well-established track record. But I think what's really crazy about this is they actually said, this was a notice from YouTube. Let's put this up there on the screen. It says, high breaking points. After a manual review, copyright owner has claimed material in your video. As a result, your video has been blocked, can no longer be played on YouTube. Uh, This claim does not affect your account status. Wow. Well, thank you for that. (laughs) And for the context, we send our premium shows an unlisted YouTube link where they can watch it. So they claim this is based on a manual review. If it was just the public clip, I think I would understand that. And also, 
also, it's not like we're making any money off of that premium video. We don't serve ads on that video right. intentionally because we send it out to our premium subscribers. So it was just outright blocked. Now, look, is this because of criticism from Qatar and all that? I'm not going to get that conspiratorial, although I do think it is possible. Uh, but I do think it just shows like a deep neuroses on their part to try and block out any of this. And I, I mean, we can't, we cannot look past the fact that A, it was done manually. Yeah. And B, this was about Iranian protesters. This is, that's what it was about. So are they trying, are they serving every news organization on the planet with a such sort of notice? Yeah, oh yeah, because right. we were far What, you from think we're the, the only, only people who cover this? Yeah, so right. could they like take it down on CNN's channel? Right. Probably not. Yeah, let's see. <laughs> I uh, mean, I would love to see that. Listen, it shows the same thing that it always shows. Number one, it is very hard to cover politics on YouTube, to cover news on mm -hmm. YouTube, and be able to do it without fear of having these sorts of issues arise, which is why we built the business model that yeah. we built, because we knew this from the beginning. Number two, like, you just, you can't trust these people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't trust it to be applied fairly. You can't trust them to be applied consistently. You can't trust our channel be treated the same way as the CNN channel or larger, you know, official corporate media channels. And so, yeah, it's, it's a terrible situation, ultimately. You know, we figured out, like, we sent out the premium show on Vimeo instead as our workaround yeah. so that we could still provide the product that we promised to you all who are paying subscribers. But, you know, we are at their whims, like, every day, all the time. We're always thinking about when we're doing the show, we're having to ask ourselves constantly, like— mm -hmm. Are they going to fair you? Is this going to be copyrighted? What about that music? All uh, What was it? We had a little music playing in our uh, midterm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Live Actually, this is fun. So we had to play a video, obviously, of Trump during his announcement. And Trump happened to have some music playing in the background. We got the whole thing got hit by copyright because there was some audio in the background of this video. When we covered, that's right. When we yeah. covered Trump, Donald Trump announcing the presidency. Okay. Yeah. There's. What can we do about that? Right. The man played some music. Obviously, this is like a clear yeah. news gathering, like core function, journalistic value, and the whole thing mm -hmm. gets hit because he played some music in the background. So it shows you how hard it is to navigate by their rules, how inconsistently the rules are applied, and how much of a threat it really is ultimately to independent, independent media. And it also shows why we appreciate you all yes. who support us so much, because if you have to be at their whims, at the whims of the YouTube gods, like they can screw you at any point in time with very little recourse. Absolutely correct. So I know a lot of you guys had questions about that, so it was important to address it. That's the full context. We've contested it. We'll see if it works or not. I'm not particularly hopeful. Uh, you know, again, the one with the UFC, uh, that was when that, I forget the guy's name, the fighter said something about Ukraine. And again, oh, we yeah. covered it, no question. Totally taken off, well, blocked. Like, And here's the other thing. It's is so like, ridiculous. Okay, let's say, so for that one, we're right. ultimately successful in the challenge. Right, but right? it took weeks, actually. To, yeah, Yeah, all the views right. are done. Like, right. at that point, I mean, yeah, yeah you're, it's over. Like, Okay, you can technically contest it. You can have it remedied after the fact. But, you know, I mean, that show is long in the past at this point. Mm -hmm. That's part of what we do here is being very timely with breaking news as it occurs. So if you're talking about weeks later getting a remedy, I mean, that's you, they've already screwed you. It's done. It's over. Absolutely right. 
All right, guys, some interesting poll results to dive into here. There's a lot here, actually, about how Democrats and Republicans feel about a variety of industries within the economy. Let's take a look at this. Um, so you've got along the right-hand side, and I'll narrate this, all these lists of different sectors of the economy. So you've got agriculture, trucking, restaurant, manufacturing, construction, dairy, higher ed, technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they asked, and this was done by YouGov, generally speaking, do you have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of these following industries? And so they've got it divided here by how Republicans feel about all of these industries versus how Democrats feel about these industries. Some of them are quite close, quite aligned. Like, for example, Republicans and Democrats feel basically the same way about the hotel industry <laughs> as one example, and also about the railroad industry, which is That's interesting good. and relevant yeah. given the fact that there's a potential strike uh, looming here. But the places where they had the biggest partisan gap soccer were news media, yep. um, entertainment, yep. higher ed, mining, broadcasting, which I think to me that's that like— That includes entertainment. Feels like yeah. it falls into both news media and broadcasting. Yes. And, uh, and uh, entertainment, rather. Education services and oil and gas. So some uh, some interesting details there. On news media, just to pull out one of our you know favorite things that we talk about— Republicans are minus 57 in terms of their views of the news media. Democrats are only at plus 17. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Democrats are really in love with the news media at this point either, but Republicans just wildly more negative on the sector. And even though I'm not a Republican, I tend to side more with their assessment of the state of affairs over there. Yeah, the big one that actually stuck out to me was higher ed, because it has yeah. Republicans at zero, but Democrats at a plus 45. To be honest, we need to I now. am surprised Republicans yeah. are at zero. I thought that they would be uh, in negative terrain. If you include boomers, they're not going to hate I the think, universities. Yeah, I think way. people, you yeah. know, people have a very, like, they have believed this is like a path to a better life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the American higher education system has long been like the envy of the world. And so it was interesting to me, yeah, that Republicans were at, uh, were still at neutral and not like overtly negative on higher education. That was kind of a surprise. Tobacco was an interesting one too, because Democrats actually have a more favorable view of the tobacco industry than the Republicans. What Although all about? the data that I've seen says there are a lot of Republicans smoke a lot more hmm. than Democrats. That well, one is surprising. So that, that one, uh, I wasn't quite sure. Pharmaceutical companies, um, this is a shared place of contempt. Good. Some yeah. <laughs> potential, you know, bipartisan overlap here. Right. You have them at minus 18 for Democrats and minus 14 for Republicans. So um, it makes me think about, you know, Josh Hawley and what was ultimately like a fairly self-serving op-ed to sort of like push any sort of midterm blame off of Trump and by mm -hmm. extension off of himself and his own stop the steal nuttiness. But he did make a good point there about like, hey guys, why are we filibustering like lowering insulin prices? Right. This is something that is insanely popular, overwhelming, bipartisan uh, skepticism of the pharmaceutical industry. I would be interested to see these numbers like pre and post COVID. Uh, I bet that there's, I think there's been a lot more skepticism of the pharmaceutical industry among Republicans post-COVID, but good to see a sort of like bipartisan contempt there. Yeah, I, like I also think that professional sports number was interesting because it's quite low. You know, professional sports True. rating very low, both for Democrats. That's not good for professional sports in general. Finance, no surprise there. Uh, but but yeah, know, actually the one that surprised me the most was tobacco and was sports, especially sports. Finance though, I mean, I'm not surprised either. And by the way, very close. Um, Republicans minus two, Democrats plus two. So both at sort of like, 
eh, not not mm-hmm. impressed with the finance industry. This would have been very different not that long ago. Republicans did have, and even Democrats. I mean, think about Obama. Totally. When he ran for president, it was considered by the mainstream press like uh, you know something in his favor that so many Wall Street executives were donating to him and were stocking his administration. I mean, this was considered like a sign of his intellect and his seriousness. And then, of course, you have the financial crash. And then, you know, you also have... <laughs> throughout the years, more and more scandal and just sort of like the rot of that entire industry on display for the whole country. And now you have a really shared bipartisan attitude of um, sort of disgust towards them. So even though I'm you know, not surprised by those numbers, it's important to note, I bet they were very difficult, different, not that long in the past. Yeah, absolutely correct. So interesting to dig into these. There's a lot here um, that you could look at. Uh, Entertainment, as I said, big partisan gap there. You also have mining. Democrats, of course, much more negative. Um, But, uh, you know, I think it also uh, you can see in some of these numbers what helps to inform cable news programming. And you can also see in these numbers some overlap where there's potential for possible bipartisan action. So we'll see. That's a good point. Either look at the, where there are differences or look at where there are actually some you know, agreement across the spectrum. Indeed. Some disturbing news for everyone out of Siberia. Scientists have revived a 48,500-year-old virus from the permafrost. Let's go ahead and put this up there on the screen. This is a longstanding effort by researchers um, who are trying to understand past pandemics and also past viruses by basically extricating them from the Siberian permafrost and then replicating them in the lab, which is what they were able to do with this particular virus. Uh, Even more troubling is the name. The name of this virus is Pandovirus Yagoma. Pandora virus, Exactly. In reference to Pandora's box. Oh, cool. Love that. Why would we facilitate that in a lab? It was taken from 52 feet below the bottom of a lake in the middle of Siberia and then replicated in the lab. One of two viruses found in 2013, um, although the other one was a different type altogether. 48,000, you guys will all know, is a world record for the oldest uh, virus that has been able to have been replicated in the lab. And what they say is the remarkable feature of Pando, Pandovirus, Pandora virus, is its size. It is a type of, quote, giant virus, more than one micrometer long. They say that it can be even examined directly under a microscope, contains hmm. 2,500 genes in contrast to minuscule modern viruses that infect humans and pa- possess no more than 10 to 20 genes. So basically what they're telling us is that it's huge and it's big and it's old, and also we have no idea what it does at all, and that people in France are playing around with it in a laboratory setting. So, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. and this this comes because of climate change, means the permafrost is melting, so it's unearthing all of these, like, prehistoric viruses that scientists are then collecting up and reviving in the lab for some reason. Um, What the researchers, they warned it could be the tip of the iceberg. They said one quarter of the Northern Hemisphere is underlain by permanently frozen ground, referred to as permafrost, due to climate warming. Irreversibly thawing permafrost is releasing organic matter frozen for up to a million years, 
most of which decomposes into carbon dioxide and methane, further enhancing the greenhouse effect. So that's how you get this like follow-on uh, cycle. Part of this organic matter also consists of revived cellular microbes, prokaryotes, and unicellular eukaryotes, as well as viruses that remain dormant since prehistorical times. So um, very dystopian. You can imagine the, the sci-fi uh movie of the end of the universe of one of these coming back to life and killing us all well, and here we are living through it. Gain of function, which is they're like, well, eventually they may be released from the permafrost, so we should just go ahead and replicate it in the lab to find out what it does. So it's like, well, what, what could go wrong? Yeah, it's like, not like that has ever happened before and caused a global pandemic. So, uh, that's what I'm probably most concerned about right now. I'm like, at least with the permafrost there's a chance that we won't get there. Uh, with this, like, what do we know about the biosafety protocols of this French lab which happens to have facilitated this? Also, as they even admit, they have no idea what it even does. Yeah. It's like this massive strain with all these genes could easily mutate and turn into something else. Like, we don't need to go down this road, all right? L leave it to the mastodons and the corpses. But Apparently, according to Global News, in 2014, the same group of researchers unearthed a 30,000-year-old virus mm. trapped in the permafrost. That discovery was groundbreaking. After all that time, the virus was still able to infect organisms. Now, this beats that record by a lot. So that was a 30,000-year-old virus. Now we're going back to 48,500-year-old virus, so almost 50,000 years old. And I, I mean, I have to assume that as more and more of the permafrost melts, older and older viruses, prehistoric viruses will ultimately be unearthed. So doesn't seem good. Major news over at CNN that they sadly were forced to write up on their own website. Let's put it up there on the screen. CNN is beginning layoffs amid economic uncertainty, cost-cutting pressures from the parent company. Chris Licht, the chief executive of CNN, announced that hundreds of people would be laying off at the overall organization who have been anxiously bracing ever since he took over. And about a month ago, made it clear that a lot of people were about to get the ax. And it really does come Crystal from pressure from their parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery. Discovery has 66 billion or so in debt that they have to pay off over, I think it's like a five year period. With the rise of interest rates and so much of what they have to deal with as an overall business, they're like, listen, this is just not going to work. Also, uh, their advertising revenue is down even though their profits continue to go up largely as a result of the cable subscriber fees that they're trying to hold on to. Hold on to. So at the promise, the beginning, Chris Lake told the organization, he's like, no, we're not going to have layoffs. He's like, we will not have widespread mass layoffs. Now, hundreds and hundreds of people overall from the organization are getting fired. Um, now, yeah. you know, it, yeah, why don't you break down? Well, exactly I was just going to say this is likely just the beginning, yeah. um, but they're mostly in this round looking at paid contributors. Right. So, I mean, that's uh, both relevant in terms of where the business is and the, uh, the directive to make these fairly uh, harsh and widespread cuts, but it will also be interesting to see who gets cut in terms of the potential editorial direction of mm -hmm. CNN. We've gotten sort of conflicting indications from Chris Licht about how he sees all of these things. Most of the big moves he's made thus far have just been like shifting the deck chairs on the Titanic. They did the new morning right. show, which, which is failure. very much like the old morning show, except kind of Lower worse, rated. actually, yeah. and doing even more poorly. So, um, you know, they tried to move Jake Tapper to primetime. That didn't work out. They moved him back. So thus far, you haven't seen, like, 
a big editorial shift. You certainly haven't seen any big plays for new, really noteworthy talent. Um, and as I've been saying all along, like what all of this really looks like here at MSNBC and over the longer term at Fox News as well is managed mm-hmm. decline, where they know that their business model is built for a previous era. Um, they tried with CNN Plus to innovate something new, didn't work. And so, I mean, like instantly didn't, yeah, work. Literally didn't work. And so now they're just trying to hold on to what they have for as long as they possibly can, cut costs, make it more sustainable for the long term. So that's kind of where they are right now. And, yeah. you know. Never fun to get laid off during the holidays. I don't feel good. You know, I'm not happy that people are getting laid off. I am happy that CNN overall is suffering. Uh, will they choose better? I hope they fail. I, yeah, I, I hope they. I hope they fail too. Uh, will they actually stick to their pledge to not turn it into a Trump circus show? You and I are both of the total opinion that no, there's no way that they can resist the juice. Like once the campaign really does begin in earnest, it, there's just no way that they will be able to avoid and slip into some of their bad habits. Yeah, so. it's capitalism. It's that's the directive that that's will come problem. from their profit market. You know, yeah. their need to get ratings right. and juice their advertising revenue. And so, yeah, they'll they'll fall right back into those those patterns. They're not even really denying it at this yeah. point either. We will all be right back to where we all began very very soon. So we'll see. Uh, overall, hundreds of layoffs so far at the organization. Possible to follow at, at other news organizations too, who also have major pressures from their parent companies. So. I guess you don't you don't like to see it for the people involved, but you do like to see it for the overall brands. All right, we'll see you guys later. Hey everyone, I'm Ken Klippenstein with Breaking Points Intercept Edition. I'm joined today by my colleague Daniel Bogislaw, who had a killer story um, yesterday about our water rights, our precious uh, resources here in the United States, being sold to a foreign country uh, in a state, Arizona, in which they're undergoing a serious uh, water shortage. Uh, can we get element one up there to show everyone what the uh, headline of the article looks like? Lobbyist for Saudi Alfalfa Company desiccating Arizona was elected to Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. So this is an actual lobby. This is a lobbyist for a Saudi company going on to work on a, a, a state government board that has oversight of, of uh, water issues. Daniel, can you tell us what you found? Sure. So this story is partially about corporate capture. It's partially about foreign capital investment in the United States. Um, and it's also about local regional water politics. Um, what my story showed was that Thomas Galvin, a uh, lobbyist for the Rose Law Group, which is a law firm in Arizona that represents numerous corporate interests, um, specifically many which are focused on land acquisition and land rights, um, lobbied on behalf of Fondamont, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of a large Saudi uh, farming and dairy production company. Um, this company realized that they could basically buy up farmland in Arizona in a county with very little water regulations. And by doing that, they were able to pump almost unlimited water, grow alfalfa, and then ship that alfalfa back to Saudi Arabia onto their dairy farms. So. Before he was appointed to the board, Galvin served as a lobbyist. He appeared um, in the state assembly to advocate for fewer restrictions on monitoring of the company's um, groundwater usage. And he was subsequently appointed to the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in 2001 to fill a vacancy, then was subsequently elected in 2022 um, to, to fill that position again. So with water rights and, and you know, them talking about rationing and, and limiting the use of water in Arizona, how was this, was this an election issue for him? I mean, you're the one that broke it, so clearly it wasn't, but how was that not? It, it was pretty shocking to see that this did not come up. Um, he ran with very little opposition 
um, for, for the seat. But in statewide politics, this has become a big issue. It's become a flashpoint uh, in the governor's race. Um, the Democratic candidate called for an investigation into the company. Um, but I think really what this represents is a breakdown uh, of any sort of regulatory oversight, be it a foreign, foreign-owned company um, like, like the Saudi Arabian one operating this farm uh, or, or these massive land developers that are coming in, building houses where there should not be houses, building houses where there's not adequate groundwater or where there's not adequate access to Colorado River water um, and continuing to build, uh, helping a small handful of rich profiteers grow wealthier uh, at the cost uh, of constituents' access to water and the livability of the state. Let me just ask you, what are the Saudis? So you're, they use it for alfalfa farms? So they're buying our water, which people here need to drink, and they're, they're not even using it for you know, residential use in, in the sense of them drinking. They're, they're just using it for alfalfa that then they give to livestock, I assume? Yeah, so a lot of the coverage of this has described what's happening uh, on this Arizona farm as, as the export of water. They're shipping alfalfa, but really they're, pe- people are framing it as the wholesale export of, of U.S. water into a, an arid climate right. in, in Saudi. Right, that makes sense. How is this not a huge political flashpoint? Because um, people need water to drink. This is a precious resource that I would imagine, if anything is like of a national security concern, it's going to be stuff that you need to drink every day to live. And I just... You would expect there to be all kind of outrage about this this sort of thing. There is lots of outrage in the state. Um, I think a piece of the complexity here uh, is the fact that all sorts of large corporations, whether they're developers, whether they're big agro, um, depend on on massive amounts of of water pumping. So I think part of the balancing act that has emerged during this process is the desire from constituents and local uh, elected officials to crack down on what they see as a foreign investment in Arizona's groundwater. At the same time, their pockets are are stuffed with cash from all sorts of other interest groups, which similarly rely on massive water consumption. So once you begin to to regulate one piece of the equation, right. it, it opens up Pandora's box for for wow. regulations that they might not be so fond of. It, one part of your story that I thought was really telling was how um, this lobbyist, before he was put up for election, he was appointed, and I think he was appointed unanimously yep. by the board, which tells you something. Absolutely, you know? it tells you that there is a somewhat bipartisan consensus um, on support for for corporate interest groups, and I think another fascinating piece of this story. Uh, is the reality that the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors has become a flashpoint in um, right-wing GOP election denial politics, right? Mm. This, this was uh, something we saw a lot during the election that Trump we're won. We're seeing now. The governor and, and is again, refusing to— And again, we're seeing it again where there was a delay. There was an issue with the voting machines. Right. Um, and the sort of conspiracy theorists come out of the woodwork. But I, I think that um, a piece of—, of the catalyst for that conspiracy, for that anxiety, for that madness, mm-hmm. is the fact that time and time again, even the, the so-called moderate politicians who sit on the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors have allied themselves yeah. with interest groups which are opposed to constituents' wants and needs. And so when you see that happen over and over and over again, people getting steamrolled right. by corporate interests, it breeds a intense right. and deranged hostility towards the system. And apparently, not even 
domestic American corporations. That's not it's it's now corporations on the other side of the world right. that you know we're not going to see anything from in terms of the you know money and, and resources being spent on things domestically. Right, and and you know I think this ties into some of your reporting um, where you've shown there there's a concerted top down effort from Saudi leadership to mobilize economic means as a cudgel against uh, political groups, namely. Democrats. Oh, right. In, in the power America. they exercise here in Washington. It's almost tactile. It's every, they have so much influence over the think tanks, over um, the revolving door that exists between folks in government who leave. And I think, and you know, when I was a younger reporter, I thought, oh, they're out of government. They're going to tell me, you know, what was going on in the Persian Gulf. They don't want to talk about it because yeah. they're going to get a contract from yeah. these guys or a sinecure or whatever it is. Absolutely. And, and that's been the case for decades. I mean, I remember seeing a, uh, a compilation of New York Times articles stretching back decades where you know, every two years there's a headline, yeah. you know, Saudi is liberalizing, right. Saudi leadership is liberalizing. <laughs> Forever liberalizing. You know, and, yeah. and you, could go, you could go decade by decade. Do you remember, my favorite headline. one is Thomas Friedman, the op-ed. He says, <laughs> yeah. he says the Arab yeah, Spring, the, the Saudi winter, I think it yeah. was, and he's going to come and liberate everybody. And but again, what we're talking about there, right, is a focus on Saudi leadership, right? right? This top-down idea. And, right. and as your reporting showed, uh, they've been very successful at, at wielding their economic weapons against political interest groups um, that they view as, as as disaligned with their incentives. However, what what my story showed is is a window into the way that um, a more diffuse uh, economic spread, um, in in this case, you know, in in an agricultural uh, area, can also start to creep into local politics, yeah. into state politics, and the way that. You have hyper-targeted uh, foreign capital investments, which you know are, are going to have an influence on right. on the, the bottom-up um, political playing field as well. Yeah, and in fact, um, the uh, Saudi regime, uh, there's been reporting to the effect that uh, they're interested in finding out to what extent they can get involved in lobbying at the state and local level, particularly in the American heartland, which is very interesting because that has political significance to this relationship that has really become very. Um, partisan in nature over the last several years under the young crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, who I think is like age thirty-five or thirty-six. Absolutely, and why? Why wouldn't they? I mean, you look at our our political landscape, you look at the infighting, and you also you, you see the complete willingness for interested parties, domestic parties, to get in on the action. If yeah. they can make money lobbying, if they can make and our uh, laws are so weak. Absolutely. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a um, retired CIA officer. He was telling me recently that when Citizens United past. Um, he, he worked in the Russia desk. He was saying that they were picking up chatter, that the Russians became very interested at that point in what they can suddenly legally do to, to move money around. And that's not to say that just the Russians are doing it. Uh, you know, all sorts of foreign actors are. That was just his area of expertise. But it was so funny to me that they're like completely cognizant of what this means, the fact that you can just flood the political system with money and just, you know, overnight are thinking of how do we take advantage of this. Absolutely. And, you know, you look at the few weak in enforcement tools that we do have, things like the Foreign Agent Registration Act, uh, which are, of course, selectively applied by the Department of Justice, right. which are, even when they are applied, often result in comparatively paltry fines. It reminds me of, like, FOIA. It's kind of like, yeah, if you want, like, please adhere to this. I, we'd like it if you did. Right. And, and I think the reason why you, you see something like FAR in such a weakened state is because uh, everyone wants a piece of the pie, right? Yeah. If, if you target one hostile foreign entity, then those same sanctions, those same fines could be levied. Someone on your district who's slinging you cash right. and who you need to win re-election. One of my favorite parts of the story, and this gets to what you were saying before about how they uh, use try to use 
forms of political influence as a cudgel was how um, the lobbyist in, involved in all this tried to say that it was racist to to think, hey, maybe Americans should have American water. Maybe that shouldn't go yeah, to Saudi Arabia. Can said, you explain how that? I think he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, attacking this farm is dishonest at best and racist at worst. I think. <laughs> what was the rationale? I think like was a quote. Well, you know, it was like you just to, hate brown people because I mean, you would like water to belong to the people that live on top of it. I think, I think, you know, he was pulling out all the stops. I mean, if you read through his his testimony, trying to block. Oh, this is before the state legislature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to block, um, you know, pretty pretty standard water monitoring in a in a largely unregulated. Right. This wasn't water. even like you can't sell. It's kind of like let's just monitor yeah, what the levels yeah. are. Um, uh, and you know, he was pulling out all the stops. He was saying this could disclose, you know. Uh, proprietary corporate information. Oh, I love that. Can you so talk about that? You, yeah, I mean, you you see, uh, you, re, you know, looking at his testimony, it, you know, you, you hold it up next to the reality that, um, you know, Arizona's groundwater, I think, has declined by fifty feet in the past ten years. Um, you know, th- this is a this is a, this is not an intrusive ask. This is not big government coming in and, and even regulating you. This was this was the first step of saying, you know, we need more monitoring. Right. Um, what I love about his testimony to the state legislature about how, what, you know, we can't do this, guys, was the particular language he used. It's very funny. He's like, okay, not not now. It's kind of like he's right, not even right. going to try to say that it's that it's too far because it's so minimal. Yeah. He's like, not now. And then there was another phrase in the article where he was like, um, he was like, he's like, oh, it's going to hurt these poor farmers and it's going to hurt their proprietary right. methods. Like going in there with a with a ruler to measure what the water levels are is like going to be some top secret thing that gets out and ruins your business. Like, right. what? How does this pass muster with anybody? I don't understand. Right, and and that's the point. It's, it's, it's about basic measures. You know, it is not about barring any foreign investment. It is not about xenophobia. It is about creating a system of, of checks to ensure uh, that first and foremost, the people who rely on that groundwater uh, are served. and. As, as the article also points out, um, you know, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors doesn't really have that much jurisdiction in their county over water rights. There are different uh, regulations for mm-hmm. Maricopa versus the county where the Fondamont Farm is located. Um, however, it offers an insight into the fact that this person comes out of a career, comes out of a law firm that um, has a host of clients with specific interests, right? And now he finds himself uh, in a place where where he's overseeing a, a, a water dispute where the Colorado River is running dry, um, a town where where local residents in uh, Maricopa County used to draw their water from is saying, we're out, the spigot's getting shut off, no more. They're trying to figure out a new plan, whether they should bring in a private utility company to supply water, whether they can strike a deal um, with, with uh, folks on the reservation nearby to haul water. Um, but you see the fabric of all these interest groups and you think to yourself, the person who is mediating between these is still employed at a law firm <laughs> right. being paid by the biggest interest groups, some of the biggest interest groups in the state. And um, again, I, I think that is where a lot of the distrust that you know some say began with Trump, but I think goes back much oh, yeah. earlier, yeah. Um, comes from and, and began. Yeah. Once again, reality outpaces our worst... Um, satires of of uh, how scary and dystopian the future is going to be. I was just thinking, reading your story about the whole water world picture of like these these wars for water. Turns out we're not even going to put up a fight for that water. <laughs> we're just going to let these foreign multinational corporations hoover it all up. Yeah, and and in fact, um, 
you know, Waters Futures trading has become oh, this, this massive new industry, yeah. right? Uh, Just speculative trading come. around. Right, speculative trading and also uh, wildly dangerous uh, experiments into uh, water futures derivatives, complex financial products, um, which are packaged and repackaged and pegged to proprietary information based on uh, California water levels and prices. And um, the trading of these commodities, at least tied to the California water index, has not you know, exploded yet, but it, it offers a window into what m- might, might be coming down the line. Perfect. Reality once again outstrips our worst dystopias. Uh, I was just thinking of water wars, the idea that, you know, uh, as water becomes a precious resource, all these countries are going to be at war with each other. It turns out we're not even going to put up a fight. Uh, this stuff is just going to be handed over to foreign multinational corporations for profit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, a piece of the end game, if you look at what's happening um, in California, there have been some uh, tentative dips into the idea of creating these complex water derivatives where you have, uh, you know, a water index based in California, and then you have more and more complex wrapped products and trusts and other financial instruments uh, to speculate off the price of water. And obviously, we know from uh, other financial crashes when you create very complicated. I don't know what you're uh, talking about. Uh, uh, financial cra- products, especially <laughs> tied. I mean, we we haven't seen them tied to natural resource. We're about to. Uh, it's usually a recipe for disaster. So, yeah, there's systemic risk in the trading, but then it's going to drive the price up too for everybody, right? Yeah, it could certainly drive the price up, and it also opens up a new uh, avenue for foreign foreign, you know, investment in um, what is now an easily tradable uh, financial product uh, in a way that is even easier to dip your beak in than you know, buying up farmland in Arizona. Awesome. So water as Bitcoin. Water coin. Water when are we going to have water yeah. coin to look forward big to? Big time. Big time. <laughs> but we'll have Dan there to report on it as it all goes down. I appreciate you joining me, Dan. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Maximilian Alvarez. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Real News Network and host of the podcast Working People, And this is the art of class war on breaking points. Well, here we are. Another chapter in the saga of the crisis in the U.S. freight rail industry is being written in blood before our eyes this week. After three years of stalled negotiations between the country's freight rail carriers and the 12 unions representing over 100,000 railroad workers, After weathering a long, contentious, excruciating process of clearing all the stages outlined in the Railway Labor Act to reach the point where strikes or lockouts on the railroads could legally take place. After months of union members reviewing and voting on a tentative agreement that was reached just hours before strikes or lockouts were set to begin in September, And after four of the 12 unions voted that tentative agreement down, four unions that represent a majority of workers on the railroads, we have once again been staring down the barrel of a potential national rail shutdown that was expected to begin as early as December 9th. But as it turns out, and I'm sad to say, many workers and bosses in the rail industry expected this to happen the entire time. President Biden, the, quote, most pro-union president you've ever seen, let the mass drop this week and urged Congress to override the democratic will of rail workers and their right to withhold their labor and force a contract down their throats to, quote, avert a rail strike, which Congress has the power to do under the Railway Labor Act. As Emily Cochran reported on Wednesday at the New York Times, quote, 
The House on Wednesday resoundingly approved legislation to avert a nationwide rail strike by imposing a labor agreement between rail companies and their workers. As lawmakers rush to shield the economy from the threat of a holiday season work stoppage and prevent a disruption in shipping across the country. Acting quickly the day after President Biden made a personal appeal at the White House, the House passed a measure that would force the rail companies and employees to abide by a tentative agreement that the Biden administration helped broker earlier this year, which increased pay and set more flexible schedules for workers. The bill passed on a bipartisan vote of 290 to 137. It goes next to the Senate, where leaders in both parties have indicated they would move quickly to avoid a disruption to the nation's rail service. But with liberal Democrats threatening to withhold their votes unless the legislation granted additional paid leave, a key demand of workers, the House also considered and approved a separate measure to add seven days of compensated sick time to the compact. That measure passed largely on party lines, 221 to 207, as Democrats sent it to the Senate with the support of just three Republicans, Representatives John Katko of New York, Don Bacon of Nebraska, and Brian Fitzpatrick of Pennsylvania, end quote. So what does this all mean? What happens next? What will this move by Biden and Congress mean for the rail industry and for workers struggle to get even the bare minimum of what they deserve? While corporate media is predictably relying on armchair pundits and politicians and industry ghouls to pontificate on these questions, our message here at Breaking Points and at The Real News is the same as always. Let's see what the workers themselves have to say. So to talk about all of this, I'm honored to be joined today by Mary Lee Taylor. Mary Lee worked on the railroads for over 30 years and retired earlier this year from her post as an engineer for BNSF Railway. But she is still an active member and activist for Railroad Workers United. Here's my interview with Mary Lee, which I recorded Wednesday night from the Real News Network studio in Baltimore. Mary Lee Taylor, thank you so much for joining us today on Breaking Points. I really appreciate it. Thank you for asking us to participate. I mean, I, I know that you've been you've been running around doing interview after interview, and I'm so grateful to you for making time to do this with everything going on. Um, you know, for everyone watching, uh, we're recording this late Wednesday night. Um, and so we're going to try to give you all up to date information. But of course, as you know, uh, news is coming out very rapidly. So, you know, there may be developments in this story by the time that you see this interview. But, you know, Mary Lee, I, I just wanted to sort of start, you know, given today's news, again, we're recording this on Wednesday. So we heard earlier today about Congress, you know, uh, at the urging of President Biden, you know, pushing these two bills through the House, passing them over to the Senate, one that, you know, is very obviously going to pass, which is going to attempt to force a contract down workers' throats uh, and end this three-long-year dispute, and then a second one that uh, looks like it's dead on arrival, but, you know, we'll see that is um, hopefully going to secure more paid sick days for railroad workers. So all of this news has been coming out over the course of the day, and I just wanted to start this interview by, you know, asking, you know, after 
watching this news unfold, given that you, you know, you and, and your fellow railroad workers have been in this contract fight for three damn years. Can you just tell us a bit about how you're feeling right now? Um, what you're hearing from other folks on the railroads, and I guess what you most want the public to know about what work how workers are doing right now. Well, I, I think it has been an interesting few days. Uh, my reaction is equal to that of many of my coworkers, former and, and current friends, coworkers that on the railroad, other people I meet on the railroad, which is unmitigated rage at the idea that the president of the United States can step in and in a dictatorial and tyrannical manner, cut across the absolute guaranteed democratic rights that we enjoy as workers and citizens of this country. Our rights are codified in the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. Those rights give us, those guarantees give us the right to organize on the job, to organize into unions, to organize freedom of association, to organize ourselves into political and, and economic and labor organizations, all of which I think our unions have to be in order to, to uh, get anything accomplished in this day and age. But we're guaranteed that. So any attempt to tell us we can't strike should be met with deep, deep resistance, deep opposition publicly, loudly, and visibly as well. And there are many other ways to do that. For example, I did uh, go on some of the letter writing sites, more, more Perfect Union, for example, had one. RWU site had one where you just go and you can say, uh, speak to your representatives, which I did several times and other people too, which I think is fine, but it's certainly not the answer. There, it has, this must be a a public campaign to win people to our perspective. I think that any worker in the in this country and frankly around the world are, is looking at this strike. We have rail workers in Britain that have been on strike are doing uh, rotating kind of strikes. We, there's workers in many other railroads I don't even know even trying to scour the press to keep up with around the world that see this fight as their fight because it is, it's ultimately all, it belongs as the property of all of us to learn from, to gain experience from, and so on. So there, there's the rage. And I think it is deep. It is very deep. It, it, is, it was reflected as far back as January of this year, where on BNSF, 100% of the BLET, the Engineers Union, and 99.5% of the Smart TD, the Conductors Union, voted to strike over the implementation of an arbitrary draconian attendance policy that BNSF did. We forced a vote within our international union to strike, period. We are striking. And of course, the railroads, as they always do, went to court and we were enjoined. And we were further enjoined from having public activities away from the railroad. They, it, was, it was a deep attack on, the, on freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of association. And we, and at the the end of that time period, we did begin to have activities, different groups. I say we in that very broad context, my brothers and sisters and other organizations, um, wives, uh, 
for it, for to be fully informed about the railroad. I can't remember their exact name. Different organizations like that rank and uh, file grassroots types. Uh, the maintenance away workers from the BMWD. They they had picket lines in different locations, even in, around Chicago, trying to uh, explain what the issues were to people going by, people coming in to work, and so on. So there's that. I think, and I think there's, it's not just frustration. I think it's directed anger at about, toward the Biden administration. In my, as it should be for spearheading this attack against us. And I think that the, every other union, unionist, every other union member in this country, in the United States itself, is also looking at this because if they can do it to us, they can sure as do it to you, every single one of you. The, a nurse, the nurses need to go on strike to fight for safe patient staffing levels? Oh no, we have COVID. You're enjoined from striking, back to work. We, we can't afford to allow you to go on strike. And that's the, the mindset, allow us. We only, and we'll see where it actually ends up being, who, how, how this all works. I think it's very fluid and it's very volatile because the primary conditions of the work, uh, work-life balance, they call it, really what we call it is quality of life issues, being able to have time away from the railroad, away from the draconian attendance policies to recharge, to rest, to perhaps recover from COVID or any other illnesses coming down the pike on all sides right now, to be able to take care of our children, our significant uh, others, one or more others, that the whatever kind of relationships we're in. We are social beings and we bear responsibility too. Things like that that we can't do. People are missing the birth of their child. I, this sounds incredible, but it's true. We miss funerals of our friends, of our relatives. Because of this, we can't afford it, not afford monetarily to take off. We don't get paid for taking off most, uh, unless it's a paid time off other thing. But we, we just can't get away. We are at the behest of the railroad under the BNSF policies for every minute of every day, of every week, of every month with only one 24 hour period of being able to take off without being victimized and punished by this, by the, by the carrier for doing that. They, it, it is surf like conditions. I, I know a lot of us didn't pay too much attention in high school history, but I, I'd encourage everybody to go back and read it because this is what it is. They virtually own you. They want to virtually own you. So if you're not, you must be under this attendance policy waiting on them to call because they can't, they refuse to attempt to even produce a lineup that would give you an idea of what trains are going to run. I mean, they, they don't, they have one, but it means nothing because some trains never show up. I mean, never. They're ghost trains. That's what we call them ghost trains. They've been on there for 24 hours or we're going to come. And you, you organize, if you're the one that's the next to be called, we organize our lives around that. So if you don't call a train for two days, and I was waiting to be called, at, let's say at seven o'clock tonight, 
now you're not going to run the train that you kept saying you're going to run. You're not going to run anything else till tomorrow morning. So I will have been up all day waiting on this call. Now I now I'm for, now you're going to call any minute because they can call any time, whether it's scheduled or not. And you you can't really sleep. So these are day after day after day of this kind of physical, mental, emotional, soul wrenching grind that has brought us to this point because of the railroads intransigence in doing that. I've, I've also just wanted to raise that we have gotten a lot of uh, messages of solidarity. A number of unions have put out their own statements, their own press releases. One of the ones that, that warmed my heart personally was the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Workers Union on the West Coast, who, yes, they, I, I some years ago, I, I actually, I knew, I had a personal relationship with somebody that worked as a, as a longshoreman and was in the ILWU. And I was just astounded all the time at, at the strength of the union. The fact that they, they will not handle goods that are being struck, for example. So if John Deere, during the John Deere strike, if they attempted to load any of those uh, containers filled with their tractors or whatever their equipment, longshoremen have the contractual right to say, I'm not loading that. So that, that shows the power that exists in possibility, potential, that we need to figure out for ourselves and our own union how to, how to use. But they, they're very strong in, in terms of solidarity with other workers, and they have been made a very clear statement uh, in solidarity with us. No, I, I, I saw that statement, too. And, and you're right. In characteristic ILWU fashion, right, it didn't mince words. Um, you know, I thought it was beautifully and succinctly put. Everyone should go check that out, and everyone should definitely go support uh, the longshore workers who have their own contract fight uh, are in the midst of their their own contract fight. So we need to show up for them as well, just like we need to show up for the UPS workers later this year, just like we need to keep showing up for, you know, striking coal miners at Warrior Met Coal who have been on strike for over 600 days at this point, striking workers at CNH Industrial who have been on strike for seven months in Iowa and Wisconsin and are still holding the line as the weather gets colder and the holidays approach. We need to keep showing up for Starbucks workers who are having their rights violated less left and right with Starbucks firing union organizers for the flimsiest excuses, closing unionized stores, all for the purpose of squashing the grassroots unionization effort. We have to keep fighting for one another. We can't let up because the bosses certainly aren't. The carriers have been intransigent, stonewalled us every step of the way of negotiations. In the first place, they're very long, drawn out rigmaroles. You have to go through all these different steps. I can't even remember how many different, how many they are. More than a dozen, let me put it that way. Over periods of time, I think I can't remember how, this is another cooling off period. I'm so cold, I'm in the deep freeze. I do not need to be cooled off anymore. These are all things codified under the Railway Labor Act passed in 1924. One of the tan tangential issues that have come through this struggle is uh, some people want to uh, place their attention on overturning, repealing this law. 
as well we should, as, as well we should. So, the, so this is just a, a peak of, of a scene in time, but there's, it's like an iceberg. The big majority is the part that you, have, that you haven't seen yet that's been going on, but is not as visible and, not, and hasn't been as public as we can be. So I think that it's absolutely, you're absolutely right that we have to get our story out. We have to talk to people. We have to name names as to what they're doing, who's doing what, and what it actually is. And I'll start with that name and names. Joe Biden can no longer claim to be pro-union. And as I have explained in other interviews, he is not pro-union. He is anti-union because when he, when the Democratic Party, with him as the premier, since he's the president, one of the premier leaders at any rate, when they decided to intervene in this strike, they didn't decide to intervene on the side of the workers. They decided to intervene on the side of the carriers. And their labor secretary, Marty Walsh, has been going around the country, including to the BLET National Convention recently, giving speeches about how great the contract is, how much he and the other Democratic Party individuals have uh, done for us, uh, none of which I agree with. And I'm not saying that there aren't uh, members of either elect, there are members of both electoral parties that have spoken in favor of rail workers and have voted. There were, uh, I believe it was seven Republicans voted in the House for the uh, seven days of, of paid sick leave, including Marco Rubio. Uh, Marco Rubio, excuse me, I'm, my, I'm tired. Uh, in stood up and spoke out and said he wouldn't vote to ram this down our throats. So that's, I, that's not to say that these are leaders, because I really don't think they lead working people particularly at all, but it shows the groundswell. It's almost something you can feel. It's almost, it, if you pay attention to your feet on the ground, you will feel the tectonic plates of the earth moving under the crust. I think there's a, and workers especially have that uh, instinctual nature. They see something like this in it, it affects them whether or not they can articulate what that means or whether or not they uh, may, may lead them immediately to action or whatever. But there is a tectonic activity happening here that we, re we need to recognize as, uh, as hopeful or, or potential leaders of these movements as, as workers, as unionists, Certainly, as someone who who thinks about uh, politics, using in a, in a generic term, in a very broad way, national and international, and so on. So, I think this is a great. It's a certainly a great time to be alive and a horrid time to work on the railroad. I mean that that is the reality. But it's a great time to to be alive as as. As there is where there's action, where there's motion, where there is sentiment, there is there's room for action to better our conditions, to lead the way for other unions 
and, and to join with other unions and, uh, and other workers who are not yet in unions to fight together. It's a tremendous chance for solidarity for anybody with a heart. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's, you know, beautifully and powerfully put, right? I mean, um, you know, there, there's, uh, you know, a great sort of um, metaphor that the the great uh, nonviolent activist George Lakey gives of he says like you know people talk about polarization in times like these as a as a terrifying thing and it can be and it is right because the extremes are are kind of you know getting more extreme the center can't hold but what he said is that you know uh, uh, um, polarization in or you know like you were talking about this sort of movement energy this sort of rage. Like that's a furnace. Like that is how you put the metal in that furnace, right? And that makes it malleable. That means that the future is still within our hands to shape in times like these. And I think that when people ask me all the time, it's like, well, what happens now? Where's the labor movement going? I say, you tell me. That answer depends on how the the answer to that question depends on what we all do right now, right? And and I would just I wanted to sort of you know pick up on that front, because um, I know I can't keep you for too much longer, but what happens now? So I mean that in two respects, like in the immediate sense on the railroads, right? People are still wondering, is this, is a strike still on the table? What is the best you know outcome out of, you know, Congress sort of going through the process that it's going through right now? Are people hopeful that more sick days will come of this? So what what's going to happen now in the immediate sense um, and what is this forced contract and, and this preemptively broken strike, you know, going to mean for the industry itself and for workers like yourself moving forward? As to what's next is a strike off the table. Well, I'm, I'm an individual who is active in the RWU as well as uh, with other union activities and so on. And I am not looking for any individual or any small group to decide that they are are going in the absence of a of a fuller group that they're going to take any individual action because that isn't going to work however the discussion that's going on is laying the basis for a true action a true mass action whether that means a strike or not is a tactical question i think we got to be clear that uh, Tactical questions are tactical questions. Principle is principle. The fight, if we're clear on what we're going for, we can discuss how we're going to get there. What's the best way? And we, we have forms for doing that within our unions, within our uh, organizations. There's many places to have that. And you play a big role in that. Um, so I don't think a strike is off the table. The, the rulers and the the uh, railroad barons would hope it is. That's what their game has been from the beginning. For a group of people that does not create profit, they sure are worried about us not bothering to show up. I mean, it, it has to be one or the other, doesn't it? But we know that we're the ones that create all the value. Warren Buffett creates no value. Katie Farmer, the CEO, creates no value. All those frontline supervisors, I think, pretty much reduce the value because they just suck up the paycheck and and have nothing to do with the railroad. I mean, like other jobs, I'm sure. So, so the question's not settled, and who will 
and I think the question has to be, who is the deciding vote? And I'm not talking about Congress. I'm talking about in general. There's only one deciding vote, and that's the vote of the ranks of labor. And I'm not talking about putting an X on a ballot. What I'm talking about is if we don't work, the railroads don't make money. And that is the only thing they understand. And that's why the strike has been a valuable lesson for lesson and learned and also a, a valuable uh, in our, in our air, uh, quiver with our arrows. It's an important tool that we have an utter right to and, and we have to stand up and defend. So I, I don't think it is off. Will this six, seven days sick leave pass? I don't make predictions, but I'm more. I, I I think that they're looking for cover because the cover's been taken away from the Congress. Everybody that votes, uh, both the House and the and the Senate, everybody that votes will be recorded, and hundreds of thousands of workers in this country, for the first time, for many of them, want to see what these guys do, and want to hold them to it. I also have, have, re have read uh, a number of uh, different articles that appeared from workers in, in the railroad talking about how they campaigned for Biden and openly and publicly and in the media are saying, I made a mistake. That will never happen again. I campaigned for him. I went door to door in, the, in the, all these months uh, several and and you you actually would know a couple of them, and they and and this then that we get slapped in the face. We're told we we're basically told we have no citizen rights. So uh, the ramifications that we're just beginning to see, I think they could be anywhere. But I think the discussion isn't going to end here. What it tells me is that railroad workers are for the first time some younger workers are for the first time seeing that it, we've had 40 years. We haven't had a decent contract since the mid 70s. Some would say the early 70s. I can't remember the exact date because the more information I get, something has to fall out. That's the way I see it. I, I just can't remember all those statistics. So none of this is settled. And, and just a final point on that, the fundamental issue, the reason that we voted to strike in January over this attendance policy. The reason that we all voted in, in every union to strike over this tentative agreement is over the quality of life issues. If those are not addressed in a fundamental way and if not resolved to give us a better quality of life, this is gonna keep, that. you cannot tamp this, you could tamp it down, but you cannot kill the flame because the objective conditions are still there, are still not dealt with. So all the, even if they do the six, seven days of paid leave and they force the agreement down our throats, I, I can pretty much assure you the fight is not over because nothing has been resolved and nothing has been resolved on the plus side for us in a fundamental way. So that, that, those will continue and they will continue to be a sticking point and we will continue to work to fight, to get our story out, to let the people know. The, I just had one 
one other little thing I wanted to say, which is that we railroad workers in RWU and not with across the board, we are fighting for the safety of ourselves, our coworkers, and every single one of you that's watching this. Because if I'm fatigued to where I should not be working, which NASA has proven through many studies that being the, at the level of fatigue that we are on, that we have on a regular basis is worse than, than being legally drunk, which is 0.08 in Illinois where I live. So by law, I can't drive impaired by, by alcohol, which is, makes sense to me, but I can, I can be so exhausted that my reaction time is worse than being dead drunk. So if you're in a little town in rural Illinois and I go through on a train, you can rest assured that I'm paying as close attention as I can to make sure that you are, your house is not engulfed in an oil can blaze or, or whatever that I, I am. And I take that responsibility seriously. And the railroad uh, bosses have, have really tried to convince us not to take that seriously. One like, you know, it's um, another point that is just so maddening about all of this. Um, and and I'm going to wrap things up in, in one second because um, I want to let you go. Uh, um, but, you know, everyone's like kind of running around uh, with their hands up saying, oh, thank God we averted, quote unquote, a national rail strike. It would have been catastrophic. And what I want to stress for anyone watching and listening to this as workers on the railroads have been telling me repeatedly is that you're going to get the effect of a strike, whether you want it or not. And what I mean by that is that as Marilee is saying, if we don't address any of these quality of life issues, any of these workplace safety issues that workers have been screaming about, about that um, the corporate greed of the rail carriers has been like making worse year after year after year. And after this process has played out, the, the rail carriers, what incentive do they have to change their ways if this is if they're going to just get everything that they want with uh, Congress's help? So um, things aren't going to get better on their own. Everyone's expecting them to just get worse unless workers fight back. But what I mean when I say you're going to get the effect of a strike is that Workers are already quitting in reportedly record numbers. They're going to keep quitting. People keep telling me they're like, if if this is how this all ends, I'm out. I can't I can't make it to retirement like this job is too much. The draconian attendance policies are too much. Being on call 24 seven, 365 is too much. I want to see my family. I want to see my kids grow up. So you're going to see more of the of that talent, more of that skill, more of those accrued years of experience. Just leave an industry that is already having a hard time hiring and retaining people. Um, so what's that going to mean? It's going to mean more slowdowns, more trains lying idle, more ports backed up, more uh, delays with the essential products that, that we depend on, higher prices for all of that. So celebrate if you want, but we didn't avert shit. And in fact, we didn't avert anything. Workers had their strike preemptively broken by President Biden and Congress. And with that, I wanted to ask you, Mary Lee, just by a way of quick rounding out, um, you know, you've been so amazing and I can't thank you enough for chatting with us today. So as I always try to end every interview, I just wanted to ask what can folks out there do to show solidarity with you and your brothers and sisters on the railroads? And, um, you know, where where should the labor movement go from here? Well, 
in terms of, I think there are some basic solidarity measures that everybody can take. Anybody who's in any professional organization, any union, can certainly discuss and or invite one of us to speak or bring it up on your own, the issues that exist and ask for solidarity. Were we to strike at any point, I would hope that everybody who wants to show solidarity would show up to the nearest rail yard with your own handmade sign supporting rail workers. Because it, it, that once if there is a strike, the strike is won or lost on the picket line in battle, whether that means in the political sense or in any other sense. That's where it is. And, and to to win the support of our fellow workers around the country and seeing them in action, it just, it inspires everybody. It inspires me to see, I mean, I could, I could go back many years, so I don't wanna sound like I'm 90, but I am of retirement age. But so, you know, I, from strikes like the United Food and Commercial Workers in, in Iowa, Ottumwa, Iowa, where I traveled from the West Coast just to show up because I wanted them to know that, that even us, we support this fight. All of those kinds of fights, to so the coal miners you referred to, the Alabama coal miners, the Amazon workers, the Starbucks, uh, workers. Th those are concrete actions that you can take. You can discuss it. I, I would like to see some churches coming out in, and saying, Biden, back up. Back up. You don't get to decide this. We support the workers. I think there are many organizations that people live in, or not live in, but around the areas in which they live and that they participate in. What, civil, uh, civic, whatever, and that's, that's a good place to start. And I, and I, I wanna ask your, your viewership to ask us for solidarity too. If you are, in, are if you're fighting as a, especially as a trade unionist in, in whatever industry or whatever, to organize whatever it is, reach out to Railroad Workers United. And I hope we can put a little blurb up somewhere with the, with the website reach out to us for solidarity because the same way that I'm asking you for solidarity with us, we have the same social responsibility and the same reciprocity, oh, excuse me, with you that we wanna express. So we will be there too. If we're not in every city, but where we are, we can find you. So let's begin to build this network stronger reach out, make allies. And, and it's by working together, in fact, and fighting together, in fact, that we will forge the strongest alliances that Biden and his entire administration and everybody else that is anti-worker, something that can defeat their actions, which for right now is, is still on the table. Hell yeah. So that is the great Mary Lee Taylor. Mary Lee worked on the railroads for over 30 years and retired earlier this year uh, from her post as an engineer for BNSF Railway. She continues to be a member and activist for Railroad Workers United. Mary Lee, thank you so much for joining us today thank on Breaking Points. Thank you so much. And keep up the good work. Right back at you.
Thank you for watching this segment with Breaking Points, and be sure to subscribe to my news outlet, The Real News, with links in the show description. See you soon for the next edition of The Art of Class War. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Solidarity forever. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.